Ken Garrett. Welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us in the Harvard College class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and are now 80 years old. In 1959, we entered Harvard as Negroes, but graduated as Blacks and African Americans. I'm joined by 14 of my classmates. Our guest is Claude Clegg. He is a professor in the Department of African, African American Studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He also has an appointment in the History Department of UNC Chapel Hill. His latest book is The Black President, Hope and Fury in the Age of Obama. My name is David Offmer. I'm from Philadelphia. Um, as we were talking earlier, I grew up in South America and uh, spent most of my career in public broadcasting at WNET in New York City and at WHYY here in Philadelphia. Uh, Jerry Secundi, I live in Pasadena, California. I grew up in the East Coast in Washington, DC. I'm an environmental lawyer, spent some time in the Peace Corps, the part I'm still doing some part-time work. And David and I really did not coordinate wearing Andover shirts. It's pure coincidence this morning. <laughs> Okay, Alden. Uh, Alden Briscoe uh, grew up in northwestern Connecticut, uh, lived in D.C. for three and a half years, in uh, uh, Flint, Michigan for three and a half years, Chicago for 15 years, and then been in southern, in, in uh, to south of San Francisco since then. My wife and I have a uh, fundraising consulting firm. Okay, Mason. Uh, I'm in Florida as I speak, but I live most of the time in Maine. Uh, I'm involved up there in a nascent group that's trying to do something about uh, climate change at the uh, local level and uh, dealing with a startup um, group of my fellow citizens. I have been reminded once again of Pogo's famous statement that we have met the enemy and he is us. <laughs> Very good. Nick. <laughs> that's a good quote. Pogo lives. Uh, I'm uh, outside, Nick Bancroft. I'm outside of Boston, um, kind of a stuck in the mud around Boston. Um, uh, Harvard classmate of these guys, uh, Harvard Business School, then into the Peace Corps, cast iron foundries and machine shops in India for a while, and then manufacturing in this country, and ended up in Boston again. Uh, investments, trusts, estates, all that kind of stuff with a little bit of venture capital work. All righty. Spencer Jourdain. Hi, I'm Spencer Jourdain. I'm from uh, Evanston, Illinois. Grew up in Evanston. <laughs> I uh, um, have been spending most of my uh, uh, time in, since 1978 involved uh, passionately in the sustainable development movement, uh, which I got me started with the Brundtland Report, where I did a uh, launched a, a global broadcast of the 10 heads of state saying, this is, this is what's going to happen in the 21st century, and every bit of it has, here we are. <laughs> so happy to be here in such a great crowd. John. Oh, hi. Uh, John Woodford. I'm here in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and grew up in Benton Harbor across the other side of the state. And I guess I've been a scribbler for a scribbler and a scratcher at other people's scribblings for most of my life, for all of them. <laughs> all righty. Peter. I'm from Evanston originally, also uh, 
I'm an editor and writer, and uh, I was in the student nonviolent coordinating committee in South Georgia in the 60s for two and a half years. I'm Joel. I'm a, uh, I grew up in New Jersey, but I've lived in many places. Longest in Buffalo, New York, but now in um, Peterborough, New Hampshire for the last eight years. I am involved in climate activism. That's coming from a, a, a career as a biochemist, and I'm now a, a climate activist. And um, I'll turn it over to Ann. Hi, Ann. Well, same, same uh, <laughs> history, pretty much. We were married the day after graduation, so I've been each mm. place Joel's been. And I'm also now living in Peterborough, and uh, I'm a climate activist, former reference librarian. Okay, Connie. Yes, Connie McDougald. I'm in New York City. I grew up in New York City, and I'm a retired lawyer. Um, uh, the most important thing about me right now is I'm finishing 10 days of isolation from COVID. Oh. And I'm happy to be back wow. in the world. It was I was not sick. I, I'm vaccinated. So uh -huh. I had hardly any symptoms, but I had to be isolated. Okay. George. George Allen. I'm in Los Angeles. I've spent uh, uh, most of my professional career as a lawyer. Pamp. Uh, uh, I'm a psychologist here in Nashville, Tennessee. I grew up in in Boston, and I uh, started out. Uh, uh, basically, I am I'm from a preppy sort of background, and I've been deconstructing my preppiness ever since with with varying degrees of success. <laughs> Good luck with that, uh, Marcy. Um, I'm in New York City where I've been engaged in major resource allocation battles for uh, many decades. Jeffrey. Uh, I'm in uh, southern, southeastern Spain. Um, was uh, teaching and writing in sociology, mostly about Latin America for many years, and have more recently been writing fiction. And now, uh, Dr. Uh, Professor uh, Claude Clay, good to see you and uh, welcome. Thank you, thank you, and thanks for having me. It looks like I have a very distinguished crowd here, and I really appreciate your, your time. I'm Claude Clegg. I'm a professor uh, at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm a historian by training. I have an appointment in both the history department here and also the Department of African, African-American, and Diaspora Studies. I'm a historian uh, by temperament and by training. I'm also, I think, a North Carolinian, a North Carolinian by such. Uh, but I've lived in a number of places. I went to graduate school uh, in Ann Arbor, uh, John, uh, where I was, uh, I received my PhD. And I lived before coming back or being invited back to UNC here. I was an undergraduate here back uh, some time ago. Uh, but I taught at the university or Indiana University of Bloomington for 17 years uh, prior to being invited to come back to Chapel Hill as a professor. Uh, so uh, the backstory is not quite as eventful and exotic and interesting as some of your backstories, uh, but but there you have it. Uh, so I'm, I'm more or less uh, come back home in so far as uh, born in North Carolina, educated here as undergraduate, now here as a, a professor. So um, it was it was again the case in which I was looking at something that I knew was historic. 
the election of the first black president. But I didn't know what kind of history it would be because it was something that was unfolding in, in front of us. So the, the next task was to watch what happens over the next four to eight years, depending on whether he was reelected. And then after that, try to think historically about that. And, and during the course of those eight years, build your own archive. So it was more or less collecting everything I could get my hands on. It was interviews, it was news, newsprint, it was YouTube videos, it was his speeches, it was reading all his books, it was reading books about him, it was reading books in his, that people in his inner circle had written about him. Uh, anything I could get my hands on became part of the archive uh, that I was building as, as uh, I was thinking about the book. Uh, so out of that uh, came this book. Um, uh, I think one of the first, it is the first pass uh, in regard to this history. Uh, Obama will, President Obama will get, I'm sure, his share of history books 10 years, 20 years, 100 years from now. But this is the first pass. And uh, it is an interesting one for me as a historian as, as far as being both uh, a writer or an interpreter of this history and also a witness. We usually are not, you know, the average one of us are writing about things that are in the past, sometimes a distant past and people who lived some time ago in faraway places. We tend not to write about things that we're actually watching, although there, there is a, a genre of recent history that exists in which people, you know, talk to people um, in their times about topics that are contemporary. But for the most part, that has not been the kind of history I've in the past written. It's usually, again, the history in the rearview mirror in which you, you, you have some critical distance, you have some, some hindsight on, and again, the dust has settled a bit. Uh, so th those are the origins of my interests. Uh, again, simply witnessing this history, starting first with the primary and the general election of 2008. Um, the through lines for the book, there are several. Uh, one, you know, this is sort of glass half full, it's the possibilities of America. Uh, this guy who's born in the middle of the Pacific, whose father's an immigrant from Africa, whose mother's from Kansas, uh, more or less raised by his grandparents, uh, comes to the mainland, uh, community organizer in, in, in uh, Chicago, goes to Ivy League schools. And he, you know, uh, he, he himself claims to have a funny name, this, this guy, uh, this skinny guy from, from, uh, from Hawaii with this sort of exotic funky background, funny name, uh, becomes president of the United States, and that that's even possible. Um, so it's part of the book is about the promise of America, uh, and Obama is embodying that promise that um, um, the country by 2008 was open to the possibility of this guy from this background uh, becoming uh, the most powerful person or being in the most powerful office in the world. And what that says about America, um, it, very few countries elect people from minority groups to be heads of state. Uh, and for even as, you know, given his, his, his father's background, he is a Luo, uh, that's the ethnic group uh, he's from in Kenya. Uh, I've heard people say that in Kenya, Obama could never become president because he's from the wrong ethnic group. He, he need to be Kikuyu and not Luo. Uh, so for, for this guy to become be able to become president uh, in the United States, uh, given our very troubled history of race, says something uh, I think tremendous. I mean, it's something great about the country. The other side of that, of course, is that his presidency 
and what happens after his presidency, his, what, his, the person who becomes his successor, <clears throat> says something about the country as well. Uh, it says that roughly one half of the country uh, had trouble digesting the idea that there was a Black first family, uh, that, um, uh, that there was a major backlash against that. And it started during his presidency, even, even, even before. He, uh, of all presidents, going back to Abraham Lincoln, our Civil War president, perhaps, uh, I think in most polls, and, and certainly as a historian, I would agree, our greatest president. Um, Obama's the most threatened one uh, in regard to people wishing to do harm to him and the first family. Uh, so it, it starts early, and this, this even starts during the, during the primaries and so forth. He gets a Secret Service detail earlier than any other presidential candidate has ever received one. Uh, and then during the course of his presidency, uh, all the sort of slights and, and not so small slights in regard to uh, you know what comes out of his his conservative ally or his conservative opponents and Fox News and the Tea Party and then of course Donald Trump and his his whole birtherism uh, claim to fame among the Republican Party. So race is always there and it's and I think it's always simmering and somewhat boiling. Um, but uh, I, I take it I was not alone in being surprised with the outcome of the 2016 election. Again, underneath that is the um, the realization that roughly half of the country were prepared to one turn the page on the Obama and the sort of democratic ascendancy in the Oval Office and not allow Obama more or less a third term through Hillary Clinton, uh, but also willing to elevate to the highest office in the land. Um, a person who had no experience in electoral politics, um, uh, who um, Multiple marriages, nothing wrong with multiple marriages, but I think if you're, you're you know, appealing to a certain religious right in this country, um, even they were prepared to look past that, fail businesses in its wake and so forth, but to elect this person who is more or less peddling ideology that you know, I think one could say kindly is designed to appeal to the base voter within the Republican Party, I think one could be more less charitable and say, uh, appealing to the worst in us uh, in regard to uh, what he had to say about immigrants, what he had to say about minorities, what he had to say about people in urban areas, what he had to say about Muslims and so forth. Uh, that about one half of the country uh, uh, was in backlash mode against Obama and making possible the tendency of his 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 successor. So that's a through line of the book as well. So these things are going, you know, in, together in tension through the book. One, America as perhaps the only country in the world that will allow an Obama phenomenon to happen in the first place. He's not a one-term president, he's a two-term president. So uh, just what that symbolizes in regard to where the country was on race by the early 21st century. But of course, what is symbolized by where we are now uh, and what we've seen over the last five years in terms of where the country is in terms of race uh, and race relations too uh, comes out of the Obama presidency. I mean, do you evaluate his, his presidency as a, as a success? I think it is, but it's not an unqualified success and no presidency is. I think in the long view, we'll see you know, what historians have to say in 50 or 100 years from now. I think um, he will be uh, overall favorably assessed as a president. I don't know if that means top 10 or top 12 or top 15, but I think uh, the successes are there. Um, it's during his time that we pull from the brink of what could have been a 
a economic depression as opposed to a recession. Uh, I think that um, uh, there was some measurable progress in regard, but not nearly enough in terms of ter a turn towards sustainability and green energy recognition that uh, climate change was a was a problem uh, that would, had been too long put on the back burner. Um, there was, of course, the Affordable Care Act, uh, in which uh, ultimately about 20 million Americans by way of the Affordable Care Act and also the uh, expansion of Medicaid across various states uh, are um, covered with, with health insurance. Uh, some tinkering around the edges for the most part are in terms of criminal justice reform and sentencing, uh, especially uh, he winds down a couple of wars in uh, the Middle East and Iraq and also Afghanistan. Um, I, I certainly think you know we could debate uh, how successful uh, either of those efforts were, and you know certainly there's a strong argument to make that both both were ill-advised debacles uh, for uh, the string of presidents who had their hands in it, from George Bush, George W. Bush, through the current president, uh, Joe Biden. Uh, so I would say there is a, there are enough successes there. Again, we come out of the great recession during his time period, although the country is not pulled out, you know, some, some people pulled out of it better than others, uh, African-Americans, um, Hispanics and others uh, fare much more poorly during the Great uh, Recession and come out of it more slowly. Uh, the Obama administration did a lot much more, did much more for the banks than they did for, let's say, homeowners who found their mortgages underwater. Um, None of the rogues and crooks who led us into the mortgage crisis in the first place were never prosecuted by the Justice Department, which I think is one of the major sort of uh, taints or major sort of um, uh, dark marks against Eric Holder's Justice Department in the Obama administration as well. So money still talked during and elites and corporations still had very strong and, and uh, voices during the Obama years. And certainly you could take him to task uh, for uh, not just him, but I, I think the government to task for being much more concerned about uh, the banking sector and the mortgage lenders, uh, the people who shopped uh, or, or, or peddled those 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 are bogus mortgages to people than the sort of aid that the government provided for uh, all of the homeowners and, and others who lost their jobs and the people who lost uh, other things during the course of the Great Recession. But overall, I think it was a successful presidency, but I think I would qualify that uh, with a, a number of caveats <laughs> in terms of, of his achievements. A lot of things were not achieved because uh, his party did not control the Congress after the midterms of 2010. Uh, the House was in Republican hands by that time period, and they were uh, relentless opponents to of his his agenda, as it tends to be the case in our uh, in our politics, so the, the outside party tends to do everything they can to make sure that the other party doesn't have much success. Um, and I think that was in overdrive, that, that tendency during the Obama years. Mm -hmm. um, but overall, I think a serious, competent um, man in the, in the Oval Office, a decent man in the Oval Office, uh, who would have wanted to do much more uh, if he could, uh, but the things that he uh, did do, whether it's Affordable Care Act and uh, again, saving the country or helping to save the country from an even deeper recession. And I would argue probably would have been a recession, a depression uh, and some other things that were accomplished uh, were uh, in the positive column in regard to achievements.
I'm not sure, and I'm actually rather positive, that we as a society have not digested how, how important the visuals of a Black first family, eight years in the White House, was for the country and especially young people. I have a son who's he's 20 now, but he's born in 2001, so he would have been seven years old when Obama was, was president. And uh, I'm not sure exactly when you start paying attention to who's the president of the United States, but it was during that eight years. And to him, that was a normal thing. That is to see the Obama daughters, Malia and Sasha and on the White House lawn or Michelle Obama and, and Barack Obama attending some state event or something. That was normal to him that Barack Obama is the president, you know, uh, and, you know, those of us who've been on, on the planet a little longer know that that absolutely was not normal. Uh, it was not part of the trajectory of American history. Um, he was the 44th president. The 43 behind him were white men. So it was absolutely not a typical thing for you to have a first family that was black. But American kids, my son's age, regardless of their background, regardless of their locale and so forth, when they became of age to know who the American president was, it was this African-American first family. That was, that was their normal. And I'm assuming, you know, hopefully we'll get some good polling on this, but I'm assuming that if, as you poll and find out more about that generation of folks uh, and as they, they mature, uh, whether they, they, they trend into a liberal direction, a progressive direction, whether they trend more conservative to the right or they're, they're centrist or moderates and so forth, Obama is sort of a linchpin in regard to how they that they learn to understand politics and presidential politics and so forth. And what does that mean? That is your first consciousness of national politics, who's in the Oval Office, is an African-American guy who's there and he's elected twice uh, and this, this first family. What does that mean for these, these young people going forward in regard to the possibilities uh, of their life, uh, of their aspirations? And, and so forth. I think that's one of the major takeaways. And, and that's one of the things we don't have as much clarity about. And we'll get that over time as we learn more about this generation of people who grew up in the early 21st century. But I, I think that that's one of the, the big legacies is the symbolism of this, this Black first family and the generation of Americans who grew up. And that's their first consciousness uh, of what the presidency was. It was a presidency, presidency in which literally anybody could be president if they were, you know, if they, of course, we know better than that. You know, this guy went to Harvard before that, he went to Columbia and he was a, a state senator in Illinois. He's a U.S. senator. So we know just anybody can become president. He has a certain sort of elite pedigree um, that, that makes him eligible you know, for this highest of office. Uh, but for those young folks uh, witnessing this, and Obama himself is very keen on this, this idea of what does it mean for African-American boys or Latino boys, or just young people in general or, or women and so forth to see uh, it's possible for someone other than the usual person to be president. Uh, again, a big takeaway from his presidency. And again, we'll see how that unfolds in regard to the political social consciousness of these young folks growing up. And there are a lot of folks who went in with high hopes for his presidency and left uh, a bit deflated. Uh, and they get deflated even before it's over, uh, his presidency. I, I think a few things are going on. I think 
one, uh, many of us misjudged who he was, um, politically speaking, uh, as he was entering the presidency. Uh, I think that uh, the hopes for his presidency were and the expectation were through the roof and, and probably not entirely realistic. Again, um, as the first of, you know, first African-American in the position, the country is an economic catastrophe, economic freefall. Um, we have two foreign wars. Uh, so the expectations were through the roof in regard to what could be done uh, coming in the, in the office. Uh, politically, Obama is more left of center than what we certainly would define today as progressive. And I think he's always been that. And I, I think that uh, many uh, projected upon him and he allowed it. If you're going to get elected, you want as many people to vote for you as possible. So you want to be as many things as many people as you can without ideally, you know, losing sight of some principles. Uh, so I think that he is politically more pra pragmatic one. He's more centrist or left of center, too, uh, than a lot of people thought that he was. Uh, three, he is willing to deal with opposition, even sometimes doing over backwards in ways that some people thought unseemly to strike a, de strike a deal with the, the opposition. And until he learned that the opposition in, um, in the Republican Party was not interested in any deal at all with him about nearly anything, even keeping the lights on by uh, raising the debt ceiling and that sort of thing. Uh, so I think that his political methodology or his political approach is that of a pragmatic realist, um, take half a loaf when you can get half a loaf. Um, uh, he's not a radical, not, not a progressive in the sense that we might think of today here in 2022. Um, he likes consensus. Some people would say that's something that comes out of his background. Perhaps it's something that comes out of his biracialism that is sort of being between the races in this gray area, uh, an African father, uh, a white Kansas mother. Uh, you know, perhaps he understands himself as, as, as being sort of this mediating force, this mediating center thing uh, that's not wholly one thing or the other, but sort of a blend, a hybrid of, of, of a number of different worlds. Uh, so um, I, I think that many folks, and I would include myself in this, misjudged who he was coming in the door. Uh, we, we didn't think that he would be so quick to bend on some things that he showed himself willing to bend on, whether it was leaving the public option out of the Affordable Care Act or um, whether it was escalating troop deployments in Iraq you know, when this guy had campaigned as an anti-war candidate. Uh, and that was the distinction he was making between himself and Hillary Clinton. She voted in favor of authorizing troops to Iraq, and I did not. But he becomes president, and he, of course, commits more troops to fight uh, ISIS in Iraq. And, and people are oh, no, that's absolutely in the wrong way. And, he, and early in his presidency, he actually gets a Nobel Peace Prize. And folks, are, you know, I think it was awarded by the Nobel Prize Committee as a sort of aspirational thing saying, we know that you've only been on the job for less than a year, but you know, with this prize, we know that you're gonna be a peace president. Of course, he, he, for many people, he is disappointing in that way in, in regard to he escalates troop uh, commitments in some places and he uses drones and that sort of thing to go after enemies. So I, I think that 
again, the expectations that some of us had of him were too high. I think too, that we misread him uh, as being um, politically someone that he wasn't exactly, you know, who we thought he was. He's more center and centrist or left of center than we thought. Uh, he was, he's much more practical and pragmatic than a lot, a lot of people on the left in particular thought or could appreciate. Uh, and again, he's the guy who's willing to take half a loaf um, and call that a good day, uh, as opposed to those individuals who, who would say that on principle, you should, not, you should not be satisfied with half a loaf uh, when you deserve the whole loaf. He would, he would you know, as far as he was con concerned, uh, he'd much rather take that half loaf uh, and put, you know, whatever hardcore principle on the shelf for the time being and call it a victory and have the long view uh than to stand on principle and, and and fight the good fight even if it the possibilities that you would get no loaf at all uh so um uh especially on the left and within the, in quarters of the democratic party in quarters of academia some of his harshest criticism comes from academics uh on the left who just think the guy is going to sell the whole store give away the whole store to the opposition uh, or who are displayed by the fact that his presidency for its duration is a wartime presidency um, from beginning to end. Uh, there are troops in Afghanistan, there are troops in Iraq, uh, there are drones being used for warfare across Africa and the Middle East. From beginning to end, he's a wartime president. And there are those who thought that this guy wasn't going to bring the sword, but he does bring the sword. Uh, in terms of American foreign policy. In his defense, Obama would probably say something that, you know, what are you expecting? The, you know, the first best calling of the U.S. presidency or president is uh, provide for the national defense. He's, he's commander in, in chief. Uh, what are you expecting? He's not, you know, he's not a, a pacifist. He can't be a pacifist being the head of state. Uh, and as U.S. president, he inherited an empire. You know, so uh, we have bases around the world and, and interests around the world. Uh, someone has to run this empire. Uh, not a satisfying answer to many who thought that he was going to be able to do a lot of things differently in regard to foreign policy. Uh, but again, I, I, I think many of us misread him in terms of thinking that he would be a radical departure from what we, we already had. Um, as opposed to an incremental change in various ways. And he's, he's more incrementalist than anything that would approach a radical change in how presidents do business. Uh, Professor, let me have you dust off your crystal ball. Uh, given the, uh, uh, what, what I would say, the, the forces against Obama, which produced Trump, uh, we now have a black woman as vice president. Are we looking at the future that that's a possibility? Uh, I know she's being attacked from right and left and I'm not a huge supporter, I must admit. I'm in California, so I've known her a long time. Mm -hmm. But she's in that position at this point in time. Are we ever gonna be able to get back to uh, an Obama type presidency? I think Obama and all these presidents are unique phenomena. Uh, so uh, there are you know, folks who would like in the Republican Party to see a reinvention of Ronald Reagan. And, you know, that's a unique time period and unique context. We won't see another person like that. We may see pretenders. Uh, and, and the same with, with Obama and folks who want to think of Joe Biden as the next FDR, uh, Franklin Roosevelt. You know, those are folks who were 
uh, in a particular historical time and behaved in, in, in that particular context uh, with the factors, those historical factors were, which were unique to their, their times. In regard to uh, our vice president, Vice President Harris, um, she's interesting in a lot of ways. One is the similarities in her biography to President Obama. You know, her, her parents are immigrants to this country. Her, her mother is from India. Her father's Jamaican. I think they meet in a California university and, and marry. Uh, she's biracial. Um, I would say she's left of center politically. Uh, she doesn't have the Ivy League pedigree that Obama has, uh, but she comes up through the ranks. She's a prosecutor and I think she's attorney general in California and then she's in the U.S. Senator. So it's just sort of being put through the paces of, of, of sort of the elite echelons of American political life prior to going to the vice presidency. Um, the differences are, are just as stark, I think. Uh, one, I, her being a woman really matters. And I think if anything we've learned in American history and you'd say the world, world history is that uh, there's a double standard in the sort of things, if you listen closely to how folks react to women politicians and how they react to male politicians, uh, you, you can see the disjunctures. They're listening for the male to project strength and, and boldness and vision and so forth. They're looking for the woman to um, uh, not be shrill uh, and to be nurturing and to um, uh, not be, you know, prickly and, and, and to be nice and so forth. So even the, and that was one of the things that hampered, I think, Hillary Clinton is that this, this whole idea that uh, she wore pantsuits. Why doesn't she wear dresses? And, you know, uh, why does, you know, why does she talk so directly about some things and she needs to show her softer side. And so things that you never hear someone critiquing, let's say Donald Trump about, uh, showing his softer side or, or, or something like that. Um, so I think that sexism and patriarchy are still very much alive in this country. And I think if she were to run in 2024, 2028, uh, that's an extra layer of disability that any female candidate will have to deal with. And that's in addition to being a candidate of color. Uh, so that's two big strikes against her going forward. Can I get into this? I have a different perspective on Obama because I have two kids who were at Punahou in Honolulu. Uh, and I think Obama's defining experience in Hawaii was not Hawaii, it was Punahou. Uh, Mishner in his book, Hawaii, uh, describes Hawaii as the only place where where you went to high school is how you were identified. Uh, it's either Punahou, Iolani, or public schools. Uh, and between Punahou and Iolani, it's better to be Punahou. Uh, just as between Harvard and Yale, with due respect, it's better to be Harvard. Uh, and uh, he was, he had to navigate uh, being not only uh, not having any uh, other African people in Hawaii other than in the military, uh, having no other black kids at Punahou, uh, 70% Asian uh, and another uh, 10 or 15% what one would say is hapa, meaning half uh, one and half the other, uh, biracial. Uh, 
and just a very thin number of kids who were completely Caucasian, uh, mine were. Uh, so my kids uh, experienced a kind of an outsiderness at Punahou that was comparable to his. Uh, and if you look at the uh, arc of his life, and, and you think about his first book, Dreams from My Father, where he talks a lot about what it was like being in Hawaii and being black uh, and being at Punahou, uh, which is a very elite place. Uh, and then Occidental, then Columbia. And then there's a year that never gets into the biographies where he's a, a securities analyst on Wall Street. And he, he deliberately leaves that out. Uh, and, uh, but he also doesn't uh, really identify with it. Uh, it goes off to Harvard Law School. And then he goes to Chicago, but he did not meet Michelle as somebody on the South Side. He met Michelle at Sidley, at Sidley Austin. Oh, yes. The most prestigious old line establishmentarian law firm in Chicago. Uh, where she was uh, a couple of years ahead of him. Uh, and, uh, but she also has the Southside connection. And then he becomes the princeling of the very, very powerful uh, uh, cliff dwellers who make up the people who live on the lakeshore front uh, above the loop. Uh, and the anointed one of the black leadership in the Illinois legislature. And talk about ambition. He gets taught about downstate Illinois. Uh, then Hillary Clinton as his adversary, and she makes the horrible mistake of engaging him in Iowa, not realizing because she hadn't paid any attention to Iowa. Uh, and he had paid very close attention to Iowa, that Iowa was a home game for him uh, because he understood downstate Illinois. And more than that, uh, he had Dick Durbin and the enormously powerful Illinois Democratic Party to pour volunteers into Iowa because two thirds of Iowa is east of Des Moines in population. Uh, a lot of it within an hour of the downstate Illinois uh, centers where you have the UAW uh, uh, well-organized in uh, various places. So volunteers can literally be poured into Iowa from Illinois. 10% of Iowa's college kids are from Illinois. Uh, and she fights him on that battleground where she can't possibly win because he's been working it deliberately for a couple of years and had visited every single one of 99 counties, what in Iowa they call a full grassley. Uh, and it seems to me that uh, at all times, he has always had an eye on what the next rung is above in the ladder and how you have to negotiate uh, being uh, uh, someone who can get along with that group uh, and he also recognizes that you can't ever be perceived as an angry black man. You just cannot. In looking at Obama, uh, he knew he was stuck with the wars and he hated it. 
he had contempt for the Nobel Prize. He didn't go to their luncheon. He arrived on Air Force One that morning. He didn't come the night before. He went to accept the prize and, and gave them a lecture from St. Augustine on the, uh, on the uh, concept of a just war. Didn't stick around afterward, went right back and got back on Air Force One and left. Uh, I'm, I'm sure having talked with his staff about, is there any way I can turn this down uh, before he went to go get it and, and concluded, no, there wasn't. Do we not need to see him as fundamentally establishmentarian? It seems to me we do. And, and I think the community organizing fits very much into that. Uh, but I also think we need to see how incredibly successful he was at understanding uh, the need uh, to get along with and deal with what he's got there in front of him. Uh, he's got a giant recession. He's got a couple of wars. Uh, he's got uh, all of the responsibilities of having to know the national security apparatus uh, and the implications of where it goes. Uh, how, how does that compute in, uh, in, in terms of how we are, and to me, those are very much like FDR uh, in having recognition of what you've got to deal with. I would say he was never really a champion of black folks in Chicago. The uh, other thing, uh, Bob Bennett, I don't know if you ever talked to Bob Bennett, in, um, um, Plod, who had an office next to Obama at the University of Chicago. He's a black lawyer. He um, he said the thing. He also he wound up he bought Elijah Muhammad's house on uh, you know that mansion later. Anyway, uh, Bob told me that in his years there with Obama, who was never a professor, of course, he was like a, a adjunct kind of a position there. He's often described as a professor. The um, he said he didn't detect any firm principles that Obama had about anything whatsoever. And I think for a politician, this probably describes a lot of politicians. What they really want is to get in, in place. So that's kind of my filter on Obama. So I would say his, the things that uh, might arouse me to the fury part of your title, your subtitle, um, I wasn't really too infuriated because I wasn't surprised because I had some familiarity with his background and what was behind him and what he might represent. And I think that the Democratic Party is the real, it's the real reason that Obama couldn't do too much, even if he wanted to, is the weakness of the Democratic Party in his kind of rootless and uh, formations and um, I think he bore the, kind of bore the brunt of it when he tried to do something. And I think he probably decided better just to sit back, relax, and, and let the money pour in after you get out of office if you can survive it, which he has. Now, as far as community ties in Chicago go, of course, he's got a lot of people there mad because the, this uh, foundation that he has set up and is going to impose 
some kind of buildings and structures are angering a lot of people. A lot of the grassroots people in the uh, south side there are not too happy about the progress of that. So he's a complicated figure, mm-hmm. and I'm sure that um, I haven't read your book, but I, I get the impression that you probably um, disclosed a lot of these elements in him. Putting him on the psychiatrist's couch, which to a certain degree, I think you all have introduced him to. Uh, so if we, uh, I, I think that observing him over the last decade plus and reading everything I get my hands on and talking to a good number of folks, I didn't talk to Bob Bennett. So it sounds like, you know, that was a missed opportunity, but I talked talk <laughs> to a lot of other folks as well. One, this is a complicated figure. Um, two, he, he described himself as a Rorschach, Rorschach test. That is, you look at him and, and you can sort of project on yourself, or project on the Rorschach, what it is. Um, I think that's true, and, he, and he's not going to correct you either, especially if it's a favorable thing about the Rorschach test. And I think that's probably what, what politi- politicians who are seeking to attract voters, um, all things to all people. It gets to the question of the principles uh, that you just mentioned. You know, If you're all things to all people, then what do you really stand for? Um, my reading of Obama is that he does stand for things. There are things that he does stand for. I, I think uh, the healthcare piece was something you can go back in his Chicago days in Chicago, Illinois legislature or the state legislature of Illinois. That was something he was pushing for. Um, Criminal justice reform, the death penalty is something, sentencing, I think police cameras, uh, they were talking about that as well. Uh, and, so, and some other things, I, I think of through lines from his times, his time as a state legislature through his time as, as presidency. Uh, but I think the pragmatism is absolutely, you know, you all put your fingers right on it. it it's absolutely there. Uh, and I think that's the thing that disappoints many people about him, that is, they thought that he was the pure distillation of something. And he revealed himself as being an alloy, a hybrid, a centrist thing, a thing in the middle, a gray zone thing, um, which politically works and worked beautifully for him. You know, his ascent, he's one of the youngest men ever to assume the office of the presidency. Uh, you know, the first term senator in the, in the U.S. Uh, Senate. Um, he was in the Illinois House or Illinois state legislature a little longer. But the ascent is a, a meteoric ascent. And I think a large part of that is this, this, will, this willingness to will and deal, uh, this willingness to meet halfway, this willingness to, to play around in the eye of the storm, uh, uh, the partisan storms around him, uh, this will to uh, cast aside something that doesn't work and take on something new. Um, again, there are people who just were never comfortable with that. That is, it looked to them to be unmoored, uh, unprincipled, unanchored, self-seeking, and so forth. I think it's a legitimate critique. Uh, I think there's more substance there than, than, than that critique would allow. But I think as a, as a way of operating politics, a way of crafting policy, I think absolutely there's much more pragmatism there, practicality, realism there than a lot of folks in the Democratic Party and a lot of folks who mistook him to be something else were ever comfortable with. 
Uh, on the other side of it, I think it makes him it makes him possible. Uh, I think if he was doctrinaire, democratic, that in the wool, liberal, progressive, Obama doesn't work as a, as a certainly his ascent would not have been uh, as high as it as it went. I don't think I don't think it would work. Uh, I think the downside is is that that doesn't work for him much when he gets into office as president. Uh, that is, he's against uh, unyielding opposition on the Republican side. That, and there's no middle ground. There's no gray zone with them. There's no gray area with them. There's no nuance with them. Um, you know, Mitch McConnell said it clearest, right? You know, I want this guy to be a one-term president, period. Uh, unless he, you know, turns out to be, you know, he does a Bill Clinton backflip and, and, and he's, he's willing to do, you know, you know, things that Republicans would like him to see him do as Clinton did with the crime bill and welfare reform and so forth. Unless he's going to become one of us, we, have, we don't want anything to do with this guy. And I think that caught Obama flat-footed. And he was slow to respond to that kind of opposition because he'd never seen it before. And his idea was that in the wake of this near collapse economically of the country, these two wars, uh, this malaise that the country is in that when I, when I come into office through that context and my sheer force of character, these Republicans will sit down with me and they will put aside this, this, this ideological stuff and then we will meet halfway for the good of the country. And his opposition did not think like that. Um, and again, I think that caught him flat footed and he struggled to respond to Mitch McConnell and John Boehner and some of the others uh, who would not play ball with him in the way that he was expecting for the greater good. Um, and I, I think he struggled with it in ways that um, was surprising to people who, again, knew him to be the pragmatist that he was, and certainly surprising to people who thought that he was this other thing, this more progressive liberal person. Uh, they were surprised by his what appeared to be an unwillingness to stand up against a, a recalcitrant Republican Party. So second term, particularly, yes. particularly a second term. Mm -hmm. he, didn't, mm -hmm. he didn't take any advantage of the fact that you're in your second term, take the gloves off, you're going to, you know, do something, build something, strike, you know, fight for something. He didn't he had a very kind of really quiescent second term. Yeah, some of that has to do with the fact that he completely lost control. The Democrats completely lost control of the um, Senate in the 2014 elections and he lost control of the House in 2010 and never regained it. Um, and some of it is who he is, I think. I think even, John, to the last moments or nearly last moments, he was thinking that he could bring, <laughs> he could bring folks around. And I think that's, I think that's who he is, uh, that by sheer charisma, by sheer force of character, uh, cajoling, he could bring people around. Even the hardest core of his opposition uh, proved him to be wrong. I think it opens the door for the likes of a Trump uh, who, um, uh, that's not his game plan at all. He is, you know, he is what he is and he says it in very clear terms. Obama thought he could cajole, he could meet halfway, he could get the half a loaf and so forth, even at a time when it was increasingly clear that that was not gonna be the, the case. Um, a lot of ways to read that. You can read it as naivete, you can read it as pragmatism gone awry. Uh, you can read it as weakness. 
Um, some would, again, his harsher critics would say it's the lack of principle, uh, the fact that he didn't just stand on principle, come hell or high water, and he was still looking for people who hated him to come to a deal or come to the table. Um, yeah, a complicated guy in some complicated times uh, who I think is true to form for the most part, even in times in which it was damaging to him and maybe damaging to the country, not to change his ways. Mm -hmm. Did you get, did you sit down with him ever? He never granted me an interview. Mm -hmm. I'm hoping that he sees my book and maybe he'll see this podcast and he'll, you know, the book was reviewed in the New York Times recently, very favorably. Maybe mm -hmm. I know he reads the Times. Maybe he'll see this and 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 uh, he, he'll grant me an interview. But I, I got as far as his press office, you know, and they and I had some back and forth with them. And of course, the standard is over that he's very busy. He gets thousands of these requests today. You know, sorry, Professor. Yeah, he should have done it before. He should have done it right, right from the get go. Yeah, well, I'd be happy to talk with him again um, um, if he if he wants to get on the record now that now that I'm on the record with the book. If he if he wants to get on the record or he thinks he needs to correct something on the record, I, I you know extend his I extend an invitation to talk to President Obama. But I never I never was able to talk to him. Although he has a historical sense, he appreciates history. He reads. Uh, he's actually a good writer. Uh, so he has a historical sense, and I think he appreciates how we historians are going to talk about his place in history. Um, uh, but yeah, he he never he never uh, uh, granted me the interview that would have, to a certain extent, John. I knew exactly what he how he had answered my questions. So the the interview would have been um, a nice thing to put in the book to say I interviewed him. But I I know I already know how he'd answer my questions. And um, for the most part, his answers would be answers that would not damage the Democratic Party, would not damage Joe Biden, would not damage Nancy Pelosi, would not damage Kamala Harris. Um, so you get that's, you know, look at his last memoir, uh, Promised Land. Um, it's a politician's memoir. It's not history. Oh, it's a kind of history, but it's more politician's memoir. It's, it's designed to, one, burnish his legacy as president and do no harm. To, the, to his brand and also the, the party's brand. So uh, sitting with him, I don't imagine he would tell me anything I did not already know and that most of you don't already know about him. But um, just to be able to say you talk to him, and at some point perhaps I'll get to talk to him before, before this is done, um, it would have been nice. Well, listen, we've been talking for about an hour and a half, folks. Already? Yeah. Where did the, the time go? <laughs> right, right. Wow. Well, thank you so much, though, for coming. An honor around. and a pleasure. It was really great. Well, thanks a lot. What, what's your next book? What are you working I might on? The next book goes 100 years back. So I'm looking at a Pan-Africanist by the name of Marcus Garvey, which you probably oh, okay. know, you've probably heard of. Mm -hmm. uh, so, um, you know, he, oh, yeah. he's, he's a very different kind of character to look at as opposed to. He's more like Trump. He's a right-wing populist of sorts. Yeah, 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 right, right. That was Claude Clegg. His new book is titled The Black President, Hope and Fury in the Age of Obama. And that's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, which you can find on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or from wherever you get your podcast. Plus, you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard. <laughs>